So far, our journey through the book of Daniel has been relatively easy. Uh, We've sailed through the first six chapters, which have some of the most memorable and compelling stories in all of the Old Testament. We've looked at the dream Nebuchadnezzar had of the four-part statue. We've seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the burning, fiery furnace for refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image. We've seen Daniel thrown into the lion's den because he refused to pray only to the king. We've seen the great, powerful Nebuchadnezzar humbled to the point that he became like a beast and then restored again once he realized that God alone places kings in their positions of authority. And these stories are fascinating, they are interesting, and honestly, they're relatively simple to understand and explain and to apply to our lives. But in Daniel chapter 7, things get a little bit more difficult. In Daniel chapter 7, the same Daniel who has been equipped and gifted and uh, given insight in order to interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar, now needs his own dream interpreted for him. Daniel, who has seen a lot of things, sees a vision that troubles and alarms him and makes him anxious. In Daniel chapter 7, Still, the big ideas and the big picture are pretty clear. But there are a lot of details that are difficult to interpret and difficult to explain. And and here's the chief difficulty, just so you kind of know where we're going. The chief difficulty in Daniel chapter 7 is figuring out whether what Daniel saw was future for him but is past for us, meaning it was about things that happened around the first coming of Christ, which was future for Daniel, but it's now behind us, or whether what Daniel is seeing was future for him and future for us, meaning it relates to the second coming of Christ, or honestly, whether it's a mixture of both. And so there are some things about Daniel chapter 7 that I just don't have clear convictions or understanding about, where I can say, this is what I think it says. There are some places where I can just say, here's what most people think, or here's what some people think, uh, and I don't know. But the main things, the things that are most important for us to take away from this passage, again, are pretty clear. But just know that, especially if you've studied Daniel in any detail before, uh, you might think at the end of this sermon, well, he didn't say anything about this, or he didn't say much about that. Well, that's probably because I'm not really sure what that means, or what's going on in this particular place. So, if you want to dig deeper, or you have dug deeper before, there's a lot more uh, questions uh, around Daniel 7 than I have answers for. Uh, But again, the main things going on in Daniel chapter 7, I think are pretty clear and are uh, both helpful and encouraging for us to consider. So that's what we'll focus on this morning. So we're picking it up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. We looked at the first half of the chapter last time, a few weeks ago. 
And uh, we saw the vision as Daniel recounted it. And now in verse 15, Daniel tells us how he responded to the vision. So he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. He was disturbed. He was troubled. He didn't like what he saw in this vision. And so he wants to know what's going on. So verse 16, it says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. Now, this is probably one of those thousands upon thousands who were surrounding the throne of the Ancient of Days in verse 9 and verse 10. Daniel is still in the vision. You understand me? He's still having the vision, and in the vision, he asks someone in that dream, as it were, hey, what's going on? What is this about that I'm seeing? And so this is almost certainly an angel that Daniel is talking to, asking him for an interpretation. And this is something we see not only uh, in Daniel, but you also see it in the book of Zechariah. You see it in the book of Revelation, where there's some kind of symbolic vision that requires interpretation And an angel will explain to the prophet or the seer or whoever what they're seeing, what's going on, will give them uh, an interpretation that then they record for us so that we can understand what's going on. So he asks for an interpretation and he receives it. And the first thing the angel does is gives him sort of the big picture understanding of what he's seeing in verse uh, 17 and 18. First thing he says in verse 17 is the four beasts are four kings. All right, now we had already looked at that part. That's pretty clear, right? The first beast that uh, was like a lion and then was uh, made to become kind of like a man, that represented Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. Right, the second beast that looked like a bear that was kind of lopsided, uh, that represents the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a combined empire of the Medes and the Persians that conquered the Babylonians. Uh, We've already seen that kingdom in the book of Daniel. At the end of chapter 5, where there was the handwriting on the wall, it was the Medes and the Persians who came and conquered the Babylonians. And then in chapter 6, when Daniel goes into the lion's den, that's during the empire, during the reign of the Medes and the Persians. The third beast that looked like a leopard that had four heads and had wings. That represented Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Alexander, remember, conquered the whole known world faster than it had ever been done uh, before he died at the young age of, uh, his, well, he's in his early 30s. I think some say 30, some say 32. He was a young man, but in, in just a decade or so, he had conquered the whole known world very rapidly, right, like a leopard. And so that was the third kingdom. And then the fourth kingdom wasn't compared to a beast. It was just terrifying. And uh, we're going to find out more about that kingdom in a little bit. So that's the first thing the angel says. The four beasts you saw, those represent four kings, four kingdoms. And then verse 18, here's the other key piece. It says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, What part of the vision is that explaining? There were no saints of the Most High in the first part of this chapter. But there was a figure who received the kingdom. 
An eternal kingdom, right? The one like a son of man. So the angel is saying, when you saw the one like the Son of Man who received the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, part of what you need to understand about that is that that means the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now we'll talk more about that in a little bit as well because he's going to get a fuller explanation of that later. But those are the two basic ideas. There's going to be four kingdoms that are terrifying and bestial, right? But then, at the end, the saints, the holy people of God, believers, they are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's the broad outline. Now, um, Daniel wants to know more than just the broad outline, though, right? He wants to know some specifics. He's got some specific questions, just like you probably do. If you read through these verses carefully, you say, okay, hold on. You didn't explain anything about that fourth beast that had ten horns. Like, what, what's that about? What, what are the ten horns for? Surely that symbolizes something. And then there was this other horn in that vision that was uh, strange and, and, and awful in its own way. You didn't say anything about that. So Daniel has more questions about what he saw. And he tells us what those questions are beginning in verse 19. Right? He says, I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. Right? So, remember, the fourth beast wasn't compared to any animal that we know. One was compared to a lion, one to a bear, right? one to a leopard. But the fourth beast, apparently there's no comparison to make. It's just awful and terrifying and frightening. And Daniel wants more explanation about that beast. He also wants to know about that horn, right? Those ten horns in verse 20. He said, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So he said, I want to know specifically about those things, about the fourth beast, the ten horns, and the other horn that came up. What is going on with those? Well, uh, he gets at least some answers about that. Um, in uh, verse 23, where it says, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, okay, so this is the angel talking again, and he's explaining to Daniel about the fourth beast. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Now, one thing to note about this, when it says it shall devour the whole earth, that doesn't necessarily mean the whole earth as we know it today. Right? Because in the Bible, often when they talk about things covering the whole earth or happening over the whole earth, they're not North and South America are not in the picture because almost nobody in biblical times knew about that part of the world. Right? They're talking about the part of the world that they knew. Right? So what for us would be like Europe and Asia and, and maybe North Africa and that, that kind of part of the world. Right? So uh, empires like the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, they covered what to people in biblical times was just about the whole world. It was everything that they knew about. Right? So uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole, whole earth. Right? It could just mean everything that people knew about at the time. All right, so 
It's going to be this awful, terrible kingdom. And here's what we've seen so far, right? When we trace the, the history of the great empires that have arisen, and we compare them with what Daniel says, we know, as we've said, Babylon was first, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then who came after the Greeks? The Romans, right? The Roman Empire. And so when we saw Nebuchadnezzar's four-part statue, and the fourth part was uh, the feet of iron, right? We said that's probably Rome. That's probably the Roman Empire. Um, In part because in that vision, the stone that Daniel uh, talks about that was cut out uh, by no human hand and that crushed the statue, right? It strikes the statue on the feet and destroys the whole thing and then grows into a great mountain. Well, that stone represents the kingdom of God. And when did the kingdom of God come like a little stone that conquered empires and then began to grow and grow and grow? During the Roman Empire, when Jesus came, right? The Romans were the ones in charge when Jesus uh, was born of the Virgin, right? And it was Caesar Augustus who made the decree that Jesus' parents had to go uh, back to uh, Bethlehem to be registered and all that. And that was when he came preaching the kingdom. That's when the kingdom of God uh, took hold, right, with the coming of Jesus. And it began to grow and grow as Jesus said that it would in his parables. Right, so... This fourth kingdom likely represents the Roman Empire, but here's where it gets tricky. Does it represent only the historical Roman Empire in the past, or does it also represent some kind of future empire that perhaps will have connections to Rome or somehow be like Rome that is yet to arise? Some people think so. It's hard to know for sure. Some of the details here are just not as easy to put together as some of the earlier ones. For example, um, what about the ten horns? Verse 24, it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. Well, who is that? That's hard to know. That's not easy to connect to the ancient historical Roman Empire, right? There were a bunch of Caesars, but there was a bunch of Roman history. I mean, there were way more than 10 leaders of the Roman Empire, <laughs> if you look at the whole history. Right? So who could that be referring to? Is it referring to historical leaders of ancient Rome, or is this talking about 10 kings who shall arise in the future, perhaps out of the remnants, as it were, of the Roman Empire from the past. I don't know. I don't know. That's one of those things that Christians debate. We struggle still to understand. So, But the ten horns are going to be ten kings, whether they were past or whether they remain future. And then the, the other horn that shall arise after them, that it talks about in verse 24, it says, He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Meaning he's going to have three of those kings knocked off somehow. How? Don't know. Who is this person? Don't know. Is it a historical figure from the past? Possibly. Or is it the Antichrist yet to come? Possibly. I don't know. But when he comes, 
or when he came, whichever one it is, verse 25 says, He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. So he's going to be an arrogant figure, blaspheming God. He's going to persecute believers. He's going to persecute God's people, wear out the saints of the Most High, is the way the angel puts it. And when it says, He shall think to change the times and the law... He's seeking to uh, do something that God does. Because earlier in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was told that it is God who changes times and seasons. And it is God who removes and sets up kings. But now this little horn is thinking to change the times. When that's something that is God's prerogative. Right? So this is a figure who is acting like God, uh, trying to, to take God's place, as it were, right? and again, is persecuting God's people. And that's probably what he's talking about at the end of verse 25 when he says, They, talking about the saints of the Most High, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, what is that time, times, and half a time? If God's people are going to be handed over to be persecuted for a time, times, and half a time, it would be good to know what that stands for. Again, I don't know if there's universal agreement about this, but typically the way this is interpreted is that a time represents a year, times represents two years, and half a time represents half a year for a total of three and a half years. That's the most... That's the interpretation I'm most familiar with, um, but Daniel's not really told any more than, than just that it's a time, times, and half a time at this point. That's, that's the explanation that he gets. So uh, this, again, whether this refers to persecution from an arrogant, blasphemous figure in the past, which certainly exists, Right? Or whether it refers to an arrogant, blasphemous persecutor in the future, or whether it's both. What we do know is what Daniel is being told here um, really is consistent with what we're told to expect to one degree or another all the time. Right? It's not as though persecution is only something Christians experience in the past, or only something Christians should expect to experience at the end, right before the return of Christ. The Bible says that Christians should be prepared to encounter persecution all the time. Right, Second, uh, Second Timothy three twelve, Paul says, "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." Now, it may not mean you end up in jail. It may not mean you in, you get beaten or have to lay down your life. But there are other forms of persecution too. The Bible talks about being reviled and um, having things spoken against you falsely as persecution as well. Are Christians reviled and persecuted in that way, even in our own country? Yes, they are. Not by everybody, but by some. It's, It's a reality that Jesus told us to expect, that the apostles experienced, that all Christians are taught and expected to be prepared to face regardless of when we live, regardless of where we live. It's something that we are going to face to one degree or another. 
But there is good news. Right? Verse 26 says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, that is the dominion of the little horn, the other horn, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now, the court that comes to sit in judgment is what Daniel saw back in verse 9 and 10. When the Ancient of Days comes and the thrones are set up and he sits on his throne and he's surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000. And verse 10 says, The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then Daniel saw after that in verse 11 and 12 the judgment that came upon the four beasts. And here he's told specifically God will bring judgment upon this other horn that persecutes and wears out God's people. In other words, the time of persecution, the time when this figure is allowed to act arrogantly and blasphemously will be limited. It will be temporary. That's part of the point of the time, times, and half a time. It's not necessarily to pinpoint you know, how many days it's going to last, but to say it's only going to last for a brief period of time. It's not going to be permanent. It's not going to be indefinite. It's not even going to be really long in the grand scheme of things. It is going to be a limited period of time that God is going to allow him to act this way before he comes to judge him and take away his power and put an end to his dominion. And when he does that, Verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, again, what does that mean that the kingdom is going to be given to the saints? Because earlier in the vision it was given to the one like a son of man. And we said we know who that one like a son of man is, right? That's Jesus. That's why Jesus called himself the son of man over and over and over and over. That's why when he was asked, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. He said, you're going to see the son of man coming with the clouds and sitting at the right hand of power. That vision in Daniel 7, that's about me. and You're going to see it fulfilled. I'm the one like a son of man. How can the kingdom be given to the one like a son of man if that's Jesus and also be given to the saints of the most high? Well, the answer is it's not one or the other. It's both. And this is what the Bible teaches us um, all over the place, really. And it's, it's so good that it's hard for us to believe and get our minds around It's not just that Jesus has come as a king and savior to lay down his life for his people, to proclaim that they can be a part of his kingdom, and to invite them to bow to him as Lord, confess their sin, trust in him, and be forgiven and received as full citizens of his kingdom. It's not just that he promises us that, which is almost too good to be true, but it is true. But even more than that, the Bible says that we're not just invited to be sort of lowly citizens of this kingdom, but that we get to reign 
with our Savior King. That's hard to get your mind around, but that's what the Bible says. Listen to this. Revelation 3.21, Jesus is speaking through John to one of the seven churches. And he says, the one who conquers, that means remains faithful to the end. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. At the very end of Revelation, in chapter 22, when it's giving us the vision of the new creation, the new heaven, sort of a renewed Eden and a new Jerusalem, we are told about God's servants, which is all God's people, all who have trusted in Christ. We're told they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's not just like the apostles or just the super holy Christians. That's all who belong to God. And 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's the same message as we see in the book of Revelation. It's the same thing that Daniel is being told here in Daniel chapter 7. Because not only does it say the kingdom is going to be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, which is, again, all believers, but then it says, His kingdom. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Is it ours or is it His? It's both. It's ours because it's His. And it's ours because He is the most generous, self-sacrificial King who's ever been. Not only did this King lay down His life for His people, but this King also says, I'm going to share my rule with my people. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Meaning, Jesus, the one like the Son of Man. What Daniel is being told, in other words, is essentially what we're told is going to happen at the end. This is, this is the end of the Bible, right? The story being told at the end of the Bible is the same story Daniel's being told here at the end of his vision. That there will be Kingdoms that are terrible and beastly. There will be persecution. There will be suffering and hardship for God's people. But Jesus, the King, the one like a son of man, is going to to, uh, have an eternal kingdom, which he has already set up, right? When he came and began his ministry, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's now. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe that the king is here with the kingdom. And when he returns, that kingdom will be established in all of its fullness. It's growing now as people all over the world hear the good news about Jesus, bow their knee to him, confess him as Lord, confess their sin, and receive the forgiveness he purchased through his death and the eternal life that he secured through his resurrection. And when God comes in judgment, all those who have persisted in wickedness and evil and who have treated God's people shamefully will face judgment. But all God's people who have endured hardship and suffering for the sake of His name will receive glory and honor and the eternal kingdom 
where they will reign with their eternal king. Or, say it more personally, we who belong to Jesus will receive an eternal kingdom and reign with our eternal king. Despite the bad news that Daniel saw, the terrifying things that he witnessed in his vision, and perhaps some terrible things yet to come, there is hope, there is glory, there is eternal good held out not only for Daniel, but also for us who, by God's grace and by God's revelation, know the end of the story. And the end of the story is what enables us to keep living faithfully in our part of the story now. No matter what hardship we face now, we know that as Paul says in Romans 8, the suffering we experience now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed at Christ's return. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to hasten that day.